This is Courage Cast. Faith, inspiration, and motivation for today. Well, hey everyone, I want to welcome you to the Courage Cast. I'm your host, Eric Nordoff. And I'm sitting here with Reed Besh. Hello, hello. <laughs> Reed is someone I've known since maybe you were 11, 12? Yeah, 10 or yeah, 10, 10, 11, maybe. something like that, yeah. <laughs> so the reason I know Reed is because Reed was my neighbor for quite a while. Um, my boys were a little bit younger than yours, about mm-hmm. maybe 10 years younger, seven, eight years younger than you, but they used to play with you. Absolutely. Every day in the backyard. Absolutely. Yep. Every day in the backyard. You guys threw football together, probably even more than I realized. Yeah, I think so. I think Honestly. I could tell you exactly what routes we ran and everything. Right. So. How old are you now? I am 23 now. Okay. 23. So you're actually four years older mm-hmm. than my the oldest. oldest. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And six years older than my youngest son. So yeah. So we, we grew up here in Franklin, Tennessee. Mm-hmm. And Reed, uh, we got reconnected because you uh, underwent this really serious uh, condition called uh, ALL, Mm -hmm. which stands for acute lymphoblastic leukemia. Correct. (laughs) Um, And when we started seeing the news about your story and what was going on with you, then we started diving deeper into, okay, what is really going on with Reed? I want to know more about what he's experiencing, Mm -hmm. how we can pray for him. And then I realized you had this like heroic story. To me, anybody that survives... Uh, that any kind of cancer uh, and comes out of it is just so much stronger, has a story, is more sure of their life uh, and approaches their life a little bit differently. So I want to, I want to dive into all of that. So tell me kind of a little bit about your background um, and, and then kind of lead into when you first heard that or thought something might be wrong. Absolutely. Uh, so, as you said, born and raised here in Franklin. I went to Brentwood Academy for high school. I played football, basketball there. Mm-hmm. Did really well with grades, so I was uh, fortunate enough. I earned all academic scholarship to Rhodes College in Memphis. Uh, but I didn't stop there. I actually wanted to kind of do a little bit more, so I actually played football there as well. Wow. Uh, but Division Three, there's no athletic scholarship, uh-huh. so it had to be all academic for me which is just something I kind of chose. Um, and it was a blessing. So I played all four years there. We actually did really well. We won a conference championship my freshman year. Wow. I still have the ring and everything. It's one of my favorite <laughs> things. So what but, conference was that? And who were you playing? Uh, it's called the South, uh, athletic association. So the SAA mm-hmm. and we play very small division three schools. So center college, uh, university of the South or Swanee, which we call them the mountain school. We don't even say their name, <laughs> but, uh, different uh, Birmingham Southern, different small division three schools just around here locally. The farthest we ever went out was Austin College, Mm -hmm. which is in Texas. That was the farthest one. But out of conference, we did schedule some cool events. So we actually went to Los Angeles, and we got to play different Division Three out there. Oh, wow. So we did still you ever, get to... Like, my school was a Division Three where I went mm-hmm. to college. I went to Ithaca College yeah, in upstate yeah. New York. And we won the Division Three National Championship yes. mm-hmm. in 1991, I think, or two. And uh, did you guys ever get a chance to get into that tournament? We did not. So they've changed the divisions a little bit and everything. So now if you win your conference, then you're automatically in the National Championship bracket is how okay. they do it. Now we won our champion or we won our conference, but we were not an automatic bid. Oh, so okay. we didn't get to go to the national championship, but we got rings for our conference sweet, and everything. Sweet. But we actually Rhodes I think the past four years now even, we've won what's called the 
President's Trophy, which is kind of like in hockey and stuff where all the sports get uh, accumulated points for yeah. victories. We've won that like past oh, four years. So we're cool. we're doing really well as a, as a school, but as football, we're just trying to get over that hump and yeah. get into the tournament. Now, you so. went to school, Brentwood Academy. Correct. You had several students that have gone on to have NFL careers. That is correct. Or yes. professional fo- uh, sport careers. Absolutely. I was like, I've played with Jalen Ramsey for the Jacksonville Jaguars, Demontre Wade on the Kansas City Chiefs. Derek Barnett, I played with him. He was a year behind me for the uh, Philadelphia Eagles, which was really cool. Wow. Um, Will Haney played at uh, Alabama and was going pro in baseball and everything like that. So mm-hmm. I've, we've been very blessed to kind of see different aspects of athletic ability go on to further careers. Yeah, so very cool. Mm-hmm. All right, so you finished college. Correct, yes. And what were you going to do with your life? So I graduated with that business degree because my mom didn't let me do history, but I'll, <laughs> you know we'll get over that eventually one day. But uh, business degree, I found a job right out of uh, college and I moved back here to Nashville um, was just living at home saving up money basically I needed to get my own apartment I was itching just to get out there get back into the real world do my own thing again and um, basically what happened was my mom and dad are cleaning out the garage and they asked me to help out now I'm a football guy so naturally I get asked to lift all the heavy stuff right if you can imagine the heaviest boxes they're like Reed go pick that up so (laughs) that's what I did I lifted a box and I heard a pop and if you're an athlete, you know you hear pops all the time when you're lifting. You're like, oh, that's my knee, it's my ankle, whatever. So all I knew it was my hip and didn't think anything of it. So I went on. We got all the garage cleaned out, which was an all-day event. But then that evening, I noticed my hip was hurting a little bit more. I was like, oh, I might have just tweaked it. I should probably just take some Advil. You know, it'll be fine by tomorrow. Well, I woke up probably midnight, one o'clock in the morning, and the pain just wasn't going away. And I had no idea what was going on. So I told my mom, I was like, hey, something's going on here. It's not feeling right. So we went to the ER and get to the ER. They do all the x-rays and everything. Basically, they said, well, the good thing is there's no bone damage. It's like, okay, what does that mean? He goes, well, it sounds like you tore your labrum. And I was like, oh, what does that mean? He goes, Mm -hmm. basically, all you did is there's a tendon in your hip, and you've stretched it too much to where it actually tore. So that's why you're experiencing some pain. An orthopedic doctor will get you fixed up. Just go see him. I was like, okay, cool. So it was coming right up around the holidays. I was like, okay, we can get that done after the holidays. No big deal. Well, the next week or so, the pain was intensifying more than what the ER people had told me, that ER uh, technicians told me. So I was like, all right, Mom, maybe we should get that scheduled before Christmas. And this was December 2017. So I went to the orthopedic doctor. He confirmed uh, on my initial consultation. He was like, yep, you have a torn labrum. I can tell by how you're moving, everything. It's torn. He goes, I want to try physical therapy first. And then if worst case scenario is you'll need surgery to repair it. Well, me thinking, okay, it's just my hip. I want to avoid surgery at all costs. Let's do physical therapy. That first physical therapy session, I didn't even get through 30 minutes. I mean, it was the pain was just so intense. Every way they were moving my leg, it just was hurting. Mm. So I went back to the doctor. He was like, all right, so it sounds like this pain's too much. It's torn. Let's get it fixed. Let's go ahead and get this date down. He goes, well, the problem is I need to get an MRI shown so that we can tell insurance and they'll cover the surgery for you. Hey, that sounds good to me. I don't have to pay for it. <laughs> so I was like, I already understand. Let's get that scheduled. Well, with my schedule, my mom's schedule and everything, it just was really difficult getting scheduled. So we ended up setting it for January. I'm still going to work all this time. Um, I'm on zero medication for the pain. All I'm just keep telling the doctors, it is hurting worse than what I can tell you. Yeah. Um, so January comes around. I finally get to the MRI and the MRI machine broke. I mean, I get into the MR machine and they're like, well, the coil broke. We can't get any images. You're just going to have to come back. And I was like, this is just now, I mean, my luck right now. So 
ended up that I was like, all right, fine, whatever. When do I reschedule? And they scheduled it for Monday, January 15th. I was like, thank goodness. Let's just get this going. Monday, January 15th, 2018. I'm getting my MRI done. Yep. So I go in for my MRI. I get it done. My mom's with me. We go right after. I mean, it takes hour, two hours, maybe not about, about a normal MRI machine time. And we go over to McDonald's. I never forget, we're in the McDonald's parking lot. Mom wants a cup of coffee before we go on. And I get a call from the doctor about 9 in the morning. He says, Reed, your bone marrow looks different. Hmm. It could be nothing, could be something. Get some blood work. We'll talk after. I was like, okay, well, what is even bone marrow? I don't know what that means. Yeah, I was like, I'm sitting here going, oh, man, I chipped my bone now. Mm -hmm. Like, I've made my hip worse. So I go over, we go over to Vanderbilt, we get um, some medical stuff done, just all blood work. It was 11 vials of blood. I didn't know anything different. I was like, geez, that's a lot, but Mm -hmm. pretty much standard. Um, You know, didn't think anything of it, went home that night. I'm still just in tremendous amount of pain. I'm just laying down. It's not going away. And I get a phone call from the doctor. And at that point, I was kind of like, okay, why is a doctor calling me at 930 at night? Yeah, I was like, is this? That's not a good sign. Exactly. You never want to hear from a doctor that late. Mm -hmm. So, and the first words out of his mouth were, Reed, I don't like giving bad news at night. It only causes people to worry. Mm -hmm. At that point, I almost tuned out going, oh no, is my leg about to be amputated? Like, what's going on? I'm still thinking hip. It's all, you know, oh my gosh, I'm not going to be able to walk normal again. And he said, Reed, you have evidence of acute leukemia. Vanderbilt Medical Center is waiting for you. Mm. I mean, the worst part is I know what leukemia is. I've heard it before. You hear it in TV shows. You know it's a type of cancer. But in that moment, my first thought was, he's got the wrong person. I mean, Mm -hmm. I'm in here for a hip hip surgery, doc. You know, there's no way this is cancer. And just my blood, that's what it showed. It had developed within 30 days of me lifting that box. They said December 2017, when I lifted that box, was right around the day that I had mutated in my cells. And January 15, 2018, when I got the MRI done, and he told me I had acute leukemia, they said in those 30 days, I had developed 85% cancer cells. Really? In your whole body? In my whole body. Your whole body had was 85%, 85% cancer cells. That's the part that of that. Quick. Mm-hmm, that's the was, acute part. But mm-hmm. was there... Was the, was there a relation between the hip and the mutation? There is and there is. So the hip has nothing to do with me getting cancer or anything. The hip hurt so bad because cancerous cells were getting and wedged in there ah. and inflaming my hip and not allowing it to so heal correctly. So the injury wasn't necessarily because of that. Or mm-hmm. maybe your cells were weakening. Correct, yes. starting to weaken and then they were taking over the injured part there. Correct, because the first thing they asked when I came mm. in, you know, what symptoms did you have? Were you fatigued? So your body was trying to fix, its, exactly. and fix it itself with 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 cancer cells exactly so i had mm. no other symptom i mean they wow. do you have fatigue anything no Didn't i'm know it totally good that fast absolutely that's, and that's the part of acute uh, leukemia is that it is so fast acting and so it comes on so quickly that by the time you have the symptoms you're already starting to lose the fight detrimentally got it so that's the one thing that they told me coming is we've caught this so early yes you're 85 percent cancer cells but we've caught it so early that we don't even know what type of cancer you have. And uh-huh. I was like, what does that mean? He goes, we know you have acute leukemia, but there's acute myeloid and acute lymphoblastic. Mm-hmm. We've caught it so early, you have evidence of both. Right. And I was like, how is this a good thing? He goes, no, no, it's a great thing. It means it's not developed yet. We can attack it now before it even gets developed. What's the difference between myeloid and lymphoblastic? Basically, what they've told me is that acute myeloid or AML is more in children under 20. Um mm-hmm. In my case, they said that there's not really a huge difference if I was to get AML or ALL because I also had a mutation on top of it. Mm-hmm. So mine was a different set completely. It was a yeah. T-cell mutation, but 
from my understanding is that it all has to do with where it is in your body. So it's all blood cancer, but myeloid attacks different parts, whereas lymphoblastic, you think of lymph nodes, but mine was in the bloodstream. So okay. that's the only difference that I And that's get. why it was getting it into all the cells. Correct. The mm-hmm. blood was, was, was feeding it. Correct. Do you know what the cause of it was? They we have we do not know the cause. The mm-hmm. um my first actual meeting with my hematologist, he walks in, he says, I'm gonna answer this question, it's gonna make you mad. He goes, We don't know why. Mm-hmm. You're not a forty year old smoker for twenty years, you're not a fifty two year old who's been working in the coal mines. He goes, We will never find the reason you got it. Mm-hmm. All we know is you have it and what we can do from here. Right. Yeah. So and, let's just Mm-hmm. You know, I've, a lot of people will will be thinking. Uh, we have a lot of health conscious people that listen, mm-hmm. so their their immediate response is, you know, the the root cause must have been diet, or the root cause mm-hmm. must have been something in your environment, mm-hmm. um, and, and and it's just not known. Correct. I was like, that's the thing with blood cancers is there's no evidence of any different type of environment, diet, and genetic. N- it's not genetic. He, I mean, we did immediately. We come in, do background tests. He asked my parents, and he goes, "Oh, well, none of that's going to matter. We just need to know if he has an, any history or any other chance of getting another type of cancer." Right, right. But he goes, "Nothing about this genetic, environmental." No, he goes, "We just we don't know what causes it yet." And that's mm-hmm. one of the things that they're hoping to get forward and moving forward is finding that cause because you can come up with a cure, but if you can find the cause and prevent it from the beginning, sure. you can do so much more. Well, what, um, what were some of, what are some of the symptoms that typical AML or ALL, uh, patients or people have? Some of the uh, symptoms that you can kind of tell is they told me was extreme fatigue. So not just feeling tired from a long day's work, right, but right. Continuous days of just fatigue and just not wanting to kind of roll out of bed, and you're just that's what they said that's the biggest one. They they related a lot to the flu, which kind of scared me. I was like, Well, I felt like I've had the flu a lot, not not in this particular moment, but I've had what could that have been something else before? Mm. And they said, No, this will be like the flu on steroids, and it'll feel like it just won't go away. You know, usually get the flu, you'll have it a week, maybe two if you're really unlucky, and then you're back up and normal. They said, You'll never quite get over the hump to feeling normal. And that's the biggest tell for them is extreme fatigue and just that. Were you experiencing that? that I was not. Yeah. I had no symptoms. So, so what's early ju- for you. Just that hip pain. That okay. was it. <laughs> okay. So, so, okay, you get this news. Mm-hmm. Tell me what you were feeling. I know you said shock. Let's <laughs> say, so, because these are stages. Absolutely. When people yeah. hear like news. So, <laughs> tell me after the shock. What was the next thing, and what did your? How did your parents react, and how was? Well, luckily, mom was on the phone with me at that time, so she actually was the first one. I mean, dead silence, you, as you can imagine. He tells you you have cancer. No one wants to speak after that. Yeah, yeah. So then, mom's just what? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, for me, mom and dad, they get on the phone, start talking with the doctor, making arrangements to get there. Mom's calling my brother, my aunt. Apparently, apparently, my mom. This is how she told my brother. She gets on the phone. My brother answers. She goes, "Your brother." has cancer click that was it it. that's it that was all she told my brother and so (laughs) he starts freaking out like what are you talking about Mm -hmm. so we explained it he came over but for me in the moment it was at first it was shock maybe this is the wrong thing but then it i started playing it over my mind and it was relief Mm. i've never heard anybody but then you start talking to other people and most cancer patients that i've spoken with they said it's a moment of relief you know what it is you know how to fight it and what you're doing next yeah for me all right, I knew this wasn't normal hip pain. I knew yeah. something else was going on. It wasn't going away. So immediately, it's no longer, what am I guessing could it be? It's, yeah. I know what it is. Let's get it going. Now Now starts my fight. Where did you so, uh, get that? Where uh, do you think that comes from? 
I think a lot of it has to come with my sports background. Mm-hmm. I I honestly do believe we've I've always been trained from three, four years old whenever I got started in sports that no matter how far you're down on the scoreboard, anything, it doesn't matter. You just keep playing the game. You just keep fighting. So I think it was just instilled in me from the beginning with my sports background that, you know, you're going to fight no matter what. But then also I, you do have your moments of doubt and, you know, unclarity. So I went immediately to, to YouTube because I remember Stuart Scott being diagnosed with cancer. Oh, yeah, yeah. And he was the, the, spo- the, the, the sports anchor. Yeah, the sports anchor and mm-hmm. on ESPN Sports Center. And I listened to his Jimmy V Foundation Award acceptance speech mm-hmm. and immediately just, I mean, blown away. He's talking about how he just got out of the hospital to go to that award show. Yeah. And he's talking about everything he's been through. And one of the kind of the things that kind of always stuck with me was – he always said, you keep fighting, you fight every day, and when you can't fight anymore, you lay down, you rest, and you let someone pick up the fight for you. Mm. And that, to me, I don't know what it was, but just in that moment, I was like, we're going to do this. You know, I was like, mm. we know what it is. Yes, I've been losing a battle because it's already been in my body and I didn't know it, but it doesn't mean it's going to win. And mm-hmm. so that's when we're going to start my fight right then and there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So January 16th, F- yep. mm-hmm. 15th, uh, you, uh, you start the fight. Mm-hmm. So that night... Probably didn't sleep very well. No. <laughs> uh, you immediately get going into fight mode. So what did fight mode look for you uh, in that? What was your experience and how long were you experiencing that? Let's see. So fight mode for me was basically getting prepared. I mean, you see all these dramatic stuff on TV of what cancer is. You yeah. always picture the worst possible thing. Mm-hmm. So my mind, it was... I want to be optimistic, but I want to be realistic. Mm-hmm. I know it's going to be a long fight, but it doesn't have to be a long fight. It's just about how my body responds. So basically what I did, I got in the mode. Mom packed me a bag. That was probably one of the best things was she went ahead and packed you know my clothes for the next day. So shorts, t-shirts, house slippers, socks, a pillow. So I had at the hospital because when we went in, we didn't know how long I was going to be there. We right. just knew I was going in for a fight. That's it. And so she packs me a to-go bag. I was, you know, looking back on it, it was one of the best things to actually have, just little things to remind you of home in the first couple of days. Yeah. Because it's just a whirlwind. Everything's going so it's fast. Tests Abs- and- uh, we, I went in on January 16th. They do an, they did 22 vials of blood. Mm. Um, they started, they hooked me up to an IV. They got me on three different pain medications to help with the hips so that I could actually move around. And then we actually had a decision to make right then and there. They said, we don't know if we should fix your hip first or attack your mm-hmm. cancer first. And they said, because when you're going through your chemo treatments, you're going to have to walk around. You're yeah. going to have to walk around this so you don't get pneumonia, so you don't get mm-hmm. other things that could be more detrimental during your care here. So they're like, we need to know, can you walk? Well, at the beginning, I couldn't walk. Mm-hmm. I was using a walker. I was on crutches. It hurt so bad. So we had to figure out how to get my hip able so I could walk around. So they said, okay, well, if we can get the pain to go away, do you think you could do this? I said, yes. So then it was finding out how to get the hip pain. So we did a steroid injection into my hip. I took uh, different pain medications just to see if I could get it to lower. As soon as we started the very first chemo treatment, immediately the pain in my hip was almost gone. Interesting. And that and they honestly believe because so many cancer cells uh, were just rubbing it yeah, and yeah, inflaming yeah, yeah. everything around it. There you go. Once they immediately attacked those cancer cells and started diminishing those, I was able to move a little bit more. Yeah. And I'll never forget the first day. Um, so I'd been with a walker, and they'd even put one of those bars above my uh, yeah. hospital bed because yeah. I had to use that to get up. Uh-huh. The first, like... Three or four days, I had been, you know, parents helping me get out. I was using that bar. About the fifth day, I got up and got out of bed on my own. Mm. 
And I stopped. I mean, I got up, stood up, and looked around and looked at everybody. And my mom's like, "You're you're doing it." And it was like, <laughs> I know it was a it was awesome just sitting there being able to get back yeah. to myself of yeah. I'm walking on my own again. Mm-hmm. And so from then on out, it was all right. We got this. Just take one step at a time. Here we go. Yeah. So, so cancer treatment. I mean, mm-hmm. chemo started like January 16th. Correct. Right? Yeah. yeah. So they went ahead. They hooked me up to all the IVs. They took all the blood work. They gave me what's called a pick line in my arm. Yeah. Um. They were getting me set up. They got the hip injection going and i think it was january 17th was the official day because they sure didn't know which type i had still so it i had evidence of aml and all so they went ahead and started me on an aml treatment yeah reason is because it's more prevalent in younger kids or yeah. younger people so they said usually 28 i think it's three-year-olds to 20-year-olds that's where they see the most of aml right, right i was right. right at 22 23 it's kind of a cutoff maybe right started me on the aml treatment and that one was called the 710 so for seven days straight, I got 10 ounces or 10 fluid ounces of uh, chemo pushed in 24-7. Mm-hmm, it just mm-hmm. kept going wow. and going and going, and even at night, going and going and going. What was your sleep like? Oh, sleep? What was your... I, I say this. If you want sleep, don't go to a hospital ever. No. <laughs> they, they, they preach to you. You need to rest, but then they wake you up. So yeah. <laughs> for me, it was 10 o'clock p.m. They would wake me up. If I was asleep, they'd wake me up for medications. Then they'd wake me up at midnight. Then they'd wake me up at 2. Then they'd wake me up at 4. Then 5.30 and 6, 6.45 is when the doctors came in on rounds. So I was up by 7. <laughs> oh, yeah, so I took a lot of naps. Uh-huh. I highly, I, I would eat lunch, tell my mom, if anyone walks in this door, you're talking to them because I'm going to sleep real quick. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. But it was honestly, they don't want to have to do it, but they have to get stuff done. They have to yeah. take your vitals. They have to make sure everything's going okay with your blood pressure, with you know your pulse and everything they got to make sure you're getting the correct meds on certain times because yeah. i had one medication i had to take every four hours mm-hmm. that is probably one of the most miserable things to be told because then you're like okay four hours from now is what time? oh i might as well go to sleep now right, <laughs> right, right. <laughs> so yeah, yeah. but it's that's the best case scenario for you winning your fight is just listening to those doctors they don't want to have to put you on anything they don't want to have to put right, you on right. they they want to get you off all the medication they want to get you off all the ivs and everything but for a certain amount of time, you just got to go through it. Yeah. So. so how long was this uh, initial round of treatment? The initial, so the first round of chemo lasted seven days, then it was over. They came back, they told me, we have good news and bad news. Good news is you don't have any more AML. Bad news is that didn't take a lot away a lot of the cancer ALL. cells. That's mm-hmm. how we found out I had ALL, ALL. is yeah. mm-hmm. this treatment didn't work. Now we know what it is specifically. Yeah. So yeah. it was a little encouraging. I mean, when you're going through it, you wanted every round to be that last round. So right, right. it was a little heartbreaking at first. Um, I'll never forget one of the moments that I kind of like an aha moment was I was in the bathroom after being told about everything, you know, just washing my hands. And on the TV outside my uh, outside the bathroom, I can hear the song in a commercial coming on. I don't know what commercial it is, and it bugs me to this day, but all I heard was, Don't You Worry Child was the song playing on that mm-hmm. commercial. Yeah. I, I can hear my parents are, you know, getting a little teary eyed out there because they ju- we've just been told round one didn't work. You right. got to go through another round. Right. And all I can remember hearing is this song, Don't You Worry Child, Don't You Worry Child, mm-hmm. Heaven's Got a Plan for You. Mm-hmm. And it just kind of sunk in for a moment. All right, round one didn't work. Doesn't mm-hmm. mean round two won't be the knockout, you yeah. know? So. On my first round, we got it over with. I went through two more rounds specifically in the hospital, which ended up... Did you up, lose your hair at this point? I had not yet. So I was a late bloomer on this. Mm-hmm. I So I didn't lose my hair until about round two and a half is what okay. I call it. Okay. About midway through round two, 
I started to notice it falling out a little bit. They they prepared me for it, but it still will freak you out when you see it. Yeah, actually, yeah. usually you know you get a haircut, not a big deal, but when you start seeing little strands, or yeah. I mean, I would lay down in bed for a moment, get up to go sit in the chair, and I'd look, and there'd be just a bunch of hair. Yeah, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. it really starts to play with your psyche. So I looked at him. I said, you know what? I want to shave my head. I don't right. want to see this anymore. Let's right. go ahead and shave it. Yeah. So that's when we made a big deal out of it. I got a mohawk going. Yeah, you know, yeah. I had the nurses I taking pictures. pictures. Yeah. Of this. Yeah. yeah, I had nurses taking pictures with me and stuff, but it was the last thing that I could control, and that's yeah. what I wanted to do. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, so uh, three weeks in now, mm-hmm. You've done two rounds or three rounds of the AL. Two, uh, two and a half. So one of AML, one of AL, correct. Yeah. And so uh, at some point you did end up having to go into kind of a, a protective zone, right? Mm-hmm. Correct. Where you can't uh, get – nobody can see you. Correct. And you mm-hmm. have to, it's very sterile environment. Mm-hmm. What, what's that all about? That's all based on how you react to each chemo. Okay. Um, so I know for me, for instance, my first round of chemo didn't destroy everything. So I still looked kind of the same. I had I actually gained a little weight, which they thought was kind of funny. I was gaining water weight and stuff. Mm-hmm. But um, so I didn't look all that different after the first round. After the second round, when it continuously went on and you could just start to see the effects of all my cells being destroyed. That's when immediately they're like, okay, we got to be careful now. People have to wash their hands if they're coming in. Yeah, yeah. Um, when you reach a certain level, uh, I know there's a normal level for what your cells should be and then an abnormal level. Well, then you got cancer patients on the other end of that as well. Yeah. They're even below the abnormal level. And that's when things like a common cold can honestly be detrimental to you. Right, so we right. have to be extremely careful. I know mom and dad were basically the only two that were allowed to leave and come back in and see me sometimes mm-hmm. just because I'm, my cells were so low that at one point they said that if you were to get a paper cut today, you could possibly bleed out by tonight. Wow. And it really starts freaking you because then yeah. you're like, what do I touch? What do I right, not touch? Right. But luckily you have nurses who are there every step of the way. So yeah. they're... I mean, there. Be careful about touching that. I, I know it seems silly, but don't touch. You know, mm-hmm. you need to wear socks and shoes when you walk. And you're like, mm-hmm. why do I need to wear socks and? Sh-? Well, trust me, if you were to slip or anything, your socks can catch you. Even yeah. and so, yeah. it just yeah. little things like that that they've been trained for. Mm-hmm. It does help out a lot. So, yeah. so what was that like emo- uh, emotionally? What did that feel like? You know, once you kind of got into this mode of nobody can was it a lonely feeling or was it a sad feeling or what um, were you were you just kind of i'd say some wrestling yeah. what like during this whole process mm-hmm. what did you wrestle with the most like honestly i was gonna say in the hospital and going through chemo i think the roughest thing i honestly went through was don't complain mm-hmm. and and everyone kept saying it's okay to complain and i'm like my biggest thing is i i don't have that much to complain about and i mm-hmm. think that's weird saying but I remember the ner- the charge nurse came in and she said, don't look anyone else on this floor. Your fight is different than everyone else on this floor. You might have the same disease, but how they respond to treatment, how you respond to treatment can be completely different. Mm-hmm. They're like, so they could be on round 17 and you could be round on, on, done on round one. Mm-hmm. It, you just don't know. So don't look around at other people and sit there and say, well, they're doing better. Why am I not like that? Yeah. I kind of had the opposite approach of, man, they've had it a lot worse than me. How, why am I not like that? Mm-hmm. You know, why, why am I doing a little bit better and they're not? And then that was my biggest struggle was, okay, just because they're not showing that they're improving doesn't mean they're not improving. Right. So right. that was my biggest kind of struggle was just doing that. Um, also it, 
some days are lonelier than others. You mm-hmm. do, I mean, it is kind of a lonely battle in the sense that my parents are si- sitting right next to me, and I know they would do anything. They've told me multiple times if they could take it away, they would take it away in a heartbeat, but they can't. You mm-hmm. know, there's nothing that they can do. All they can do is try to make me feel comfortable or s- little stuff that they did, like bringing a pillow and mm-hmm. staying with. I, they had 24-7 someone was with me, whether it was yeah. my mom, my dad, my brother, my aunt. You know, somebody was with me. Mm-hmm. And it was honestly, you know, I look back and yeah, it was kind of annoying here, there. I wanted, but also it was probably the most when I needed someone because yeah. I didn't tell them, but I did need mm-hmm. them. So, yeah. so how long did this whole thing last? How long were you in the hospital? So the first little bit, they break it up into sections. So until we got rid of the cancer cells, I was in the hospital and that took, I think it lasted officially 53 days. Wow. So I was in the hospital from January 16th until 53 days later, which was roughly March 9th. Okay. And I remember this because I roughly March 9th, I get out, I'm so excited. And then a, a fever broke and I was right back in the hospital the next day. Oh, <laughs> uh, you went home? I went home, came back. They, the nurse or the doctor on call was sitting there giving me a little, because I come in for uh, blood work. Like She looks at me, she goes, your eyes look a little jaundiced. Is that mm-hmm. normal for you? And I was like, it is if I get to stay home. I knew where this conversation was going. I was like, it is if I get to stay home. <laughs> and she was like, no, you let's get you back in. So they kept me overnight again. Uh, basically what happened was my liver enzymes were shooting up because yeah. I was coming off of medication yeah. that was helping it. So now it was expecting certain things to be there. Mm-hmm. But uh, So I ended up went back to the hospital about another day or two and then got to go home again. Mm-hmm. And that's just the kind of life you live as a cancer patient is you could go into the hospital at any point in time and you can come out at any point in time after yeah. that. So. <laughs> so, uh, so were you cancer free at that point? No. Uh, technically speaking, no. So what the first two and a half to three rounds had done was wiped out every cell in my body. So you're like, oh, that means there's every cell in your body. That means every cell that you say I had completely been knocked out completely. So I was, what you do is you reproduce cells about every 30 to 45 days. Mm -hmm. So what happened was they knocked out all the cells that they could at the beginning. Mm -hmm. Then I reproduced some more and then they tried to wipe those out again. Oh. And so what they're trying to see at that point is, am I going to be recreating more cancerous cells mm-hmm. again? Mm-hmm. You know, that's why they want to knock out all of them is because good or bad, they want them all gone just in case. If you aim for just the bad ones, you sometimes miss a few. Right. And right. so that's why they want just, those duplicated. Exactly. So you just want to wipe out everything and start with a clean plate. So that's what we did. We knocked out everything. 50 days. They finally were like, look, we've knocked out everything. You're good to go home. Enjoy a little time. I still wasn't cancer-free because we had to wait for that next biopsy to double-check and make sure, am I reproducing more cancer cells? Right, right. And? And we didn't actually get uh, into that. So what happened was I went in and they said, okay, here's the two options. We can wait and hope you don't have cancer come back, or we can go ahead and get you on the transplant list for a bone marrow biop- or a bone marrow transplant and give you maintenance chemo so that we only keep good cells, but it's going to be a few good cells. Mm -hmm, So mm -hmm. instead of reproducing all my cells, I reproduced about half of what I needed. We would knock it out through my maintenance chemo so that I wouldn't reproduce any more cells, and then I'd be given a transplant. Mm -hmm. We, After kind of talking and talking with the doctor, he thought it'd be best to go ahead and start trying to do that. So that's what we went with, was the maintenance chemo and then a transplant. Okay, and so how did that go? Uh, it took forever, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Um, they actually started my transplant process the day I came in on January 16th. Yeah. They took my blood, started matching different markers and stuff, 
And it came out to that out of the 15 to 17 million people that are on the bone marrow registry, I matched with three total people. Wow. The transplant coordinator came to me and said, you are my most difficult case right now. Wow. <laughs> I was wow. like, I nice. don't want to hear that. You're welcome. She said... It is unbelievable. She goes, with everything about you, how young you are, the demographic that you own, you should have the most most matches. You don't. Mm-hmm. You have unique markers. Yeah. So they immediately tried to contact those three. One, they never could get a hold of. Mm-hmm. The second one, I believe, just could not do it in that time for whatever reason. You know, you don't have to actually go through with the process. So for whatever reason, it could be pregnancy, work, anything like that. She just, he or she did not feel like they could go with mm-hmm. go forward with it. And the last one said yes. Wow. And so I was like, oh, this is awesome. Okay, so what are we doing here? I don't get told anything about the process, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. So I have no idea. All I knew was they said we have one match for you that's going to move forward wow. she, and so the transplant coordinator goes we have to think about a backup if mm-hmm. they were to choose to pull out at any point in time mm-hmm. so they told me that your one match is a nine out of ten match and your backup is your mom who's five out of ten uh-huh. Uh-huh. and so i'm like was there no 10 out of 10 mm-hmm. you know I'm like what's going on and she goes no there's no 10 out of 10s that we can find uh-huh. nine out of ten is still extremely well and so we're going to move forward with this one if it doesn't come to fruition, then you'll be using your mom, who's a half match. Yeah. And they call that a haploid, a haploid match. Okay, so um, just just briefly, uh, what's is that a difficult process for someone who's giving? Are they are they sacrificing something? I know you you know people donate kidneys. Mm-hmm. That's a that sounds like a pretty big sacrifice it, to me. It is. It, so I'm just curious it how, is, how no, that compares. Completely different than organ donors. That's yeah. what I'll say. I I respect the you know everyone who does decide to donate and do stuff. The difference is so first off to get tested to see if you're a bone marrow match they simply swab your mouth. They will okay. they send you something in the mail or you can go to a drive. They'll take a swab like you see that they do for the nasal swabs. Mm-hmm. They'll stick that on the left cheek, on the right cheek, stick it in the mail and that's all you got to do. They will oh. test it for the registry. So yeah, it is yeah. simple, simple as a, to do. very simple. Mm-hmm. The actual giving process if you were chose it's called a bone marrow slash stem cell transplant. Mm-hmm. So what they'll do is depending on which one um, there's normal stem cells, which is what I received. And then there's actual bone marrow that you can donate. The bone marrow is basically that they would make a small incision on your hip. Mm-hmm. And basically what I've been told is kind of like a flu shot looking needle goes in, extracts liquid marrow and out of your bone, out of your bone, inside of the bone. Correct. Yeah. And mm-hmm. then given to the recipient. Mm-hmm. I don't know as much about that process. That's not what I went through. From what I've read is you get numbing medicine, mm-hmm. and basically they tell you not to drive the rest of the day. Okay. That's it for the liquid marrow. I, mm-hmm. I can't quote that, though. That's just the research that I've done. For mm-hmm. my stem cells, though, what they did was they gave my uh, donor an injection to help rev up to make more cells produce them quicker. Mm-hmm. They gave her about a week, he or she about a week, I believe, yeah. to kind of rev up the cells. Mm-hmm. They came back in, and basically it was a blood transfusion where they took blood out of one arm, mm-hmm. ran it through a machine, re- extracted the stem cells, and then put her blood or his blood back into the other arm. Wow. And that was it. They were done after that. So. Okay. But okay. that's what saved my life. So. Oh, my gosh. Mm-hmm. Amazing. Um. So that saved your life. Correct. You didn't know who you don't know who it was. No, I know it's a nineteen year old yep, nineteen year old international donor. 
I don't know male or female. I don't know what country. Hopefully HIPAA will let me and she'll, it, he or she will, you know, want to meet me later. But mm-hmm. HIPAA laws is I can't write a letter till six months down the road and I can't meet until a year or two. Mm. So we're, we're hoping maybe, you know, he or she out there, if, <laughs> if they hear this and you donated to me and oh, you find yeah. out, please, you know, please want to say hi. So it's a real, <laughs> it's a real rewarding thing. I can imagine. Mm-hmm. I can only imagine. So, um, all right. So, uh, so that saved your life. Correct. Mm-hmm. Because it, it replenished, it enabled your body to make the cells. Mm-hmm. And now are you cancer free? Correct. Right now I am officially listed as in complete remission. Mm-hmm. So I am completely cancer free at the moment. Mm-hmm. They will not list me on, as cured until five years down the road. The most relapse in developing cancer again is in the first five years. Okay. So they said, once you hit that five-year mark, then you'll officially be labeled as cured. And okay. That's what we're looking forward to. Yeah, yeah man, me too. <laughs> so uh, why do you still wear the mask? So right now, I'm still at just a vulnerable position. So okay. me specifically, it's different for different cancer patients, yeah. depending on how you kind of rebound. Mm-hmm. So for me, my cells have rebounded, but my immune system hasn't. I'm still... I haven't gotten, I got to get new shots for, you know, all the things that you got as a kid. Mm -hmm. I have to re-get those. And so part of the issue is if I was to get the flu or anything, my immune system still can't fight it off on its own. Yeah. So I still have to wear a mask, wear gloves, you know, use the hand sanitizer, which is what we should be doing in the first place. Right. right. But I'm just at a more vulnerable position position because my immune system hasn't fully recovered. Okay. So Mm -hmm. a lot of immunity issues that you need to be sure of. Correct. All right. Um... Okay, so you had quite an experience. One of the things I've heard about you is that you had a lot of fun with the the doctors and the nurses, particularly. <laughs> Correct. So, do you have any stories you want to relate? Oh, absolutely. I was like, let's see. I mean, there's I could you could ask any nurse on there, and they just they know me by name now, which is not always a good thing. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. Can't get away with too much. But one of the things I did was. I wanted to get up and kind of moving, walking around. I was one of the few that just kind of took it as a competition. Mm-hmm. And so I remember one day, I got bored looking at the same stuff, to be honest. I, I love everybody up there, but it was the same scenic tour and yada, yada, yada. <laughs> so what I did is I printed off little pictures, like about the size you put in your wallet. I uh-huh. printed off pictures of me doing different stuff, sticking my tongue out, wearing one of my favorite shirts that says, I cut the cheese at Grandpa's Cheese Barn, <laughs> like different, different weird things, and I posted them. All around the floor. I didn't tell anybody. I just posted. Oh, I just posted them. And the next thing I knew, because I did this one afternoon, by that evening, every nurse had come and said that they had laughed and were (laughs) searching for them. But also patients were going around. And I had kept in track. I was like, I want to put 10 up, 10 to 12, whatever. Well, then the next thing I knew is they have this game, Where's Rito, written, and they are <laughs> bound and determined they're going to find all 12 pictures of Reed and where he is That's on the floor. Awesome. And it was just one of the most rewarding things listening to one of the nurses come in and say, we had this gentleman, he wouldn't walk, we couldn't get him to walk. He saw your picture from his room mm-hmm. and said, what's going on? And we told him, he's, he's hidden photos around. He went out, found all 12, <laughs> re-hit them in a different spot, and challenged another uh, patient up there, idea. challenged another patient to find them and see if he could do it quicker. Yeah. It was the most rewarding thing to hear from about yeah. that. So it was just a bunch of shenanigans, mm-hmm. but I had fun with it. Yeah, so. <laughs> and it turned into something that would really impact someone's life because you Absolutely. need them to get around. So Absolutely. It was, a, it was a win-win for everybody. <laughs> That's awesome. I love it. I love it. I just, it just to me, it just it just kind of demonstrates that 
You know, uh, you don't have to do these huge, big things to change Absolutely. people's lives. It's a lot of times it's just how you're naturally wired, what you're mm -hmm. naturally gifted at, how, you know, what your God given uh, abilities are and just using those to the best of your ability so that you can impact people's lives. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. That just reminds me, I met one patient up there, Mr. Ronnie, and the simplest thing we did was when we were up there, we're both big Predators fans, yeah. huge hockey fans. Yeah. They didn't have the games on TV most of the time. So mm -hmm. I remember I had my iPad and we had somehow got worked it out that we had a subscription so I could mm -hmm. watch the Preds game. He was devastated. I mean, I remember him coming in. He's like, I don't get to watch the Preds game because we, we were talking. I had a Preds shirt on that day. Mm -hmm. And the next thing I know, I was like, well, I, I get him on my iPad. Maybe we can meet up and watch him. Mm -hmm. He was like, yeah, absolutely. He was so excited. I completely forgot about it. I took a nap and mm -hmm. completely forgot. And at 6.45, hey, the Preds game's on in 15 minutes. Can we mm -hmm. watch it? Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So we went <laughs> out. I mean, the simplest thing he even said, you know, that's one of the greatest things was he remembers I got to watch that Predators game that yeah, night. Smallest yeah. of things right there. So. Yeah, that's awesome, man. That's so good. The relationship relationships and the Absolutely. impact that you can make. Okay. So, um, fast forward now, this is quite a, quite a battle that you went through. Um, you are now competing for something. Correct. Yes. You had an opportunity <laughs> and this isn't, from what I understand, this doesn't happen with everyone no. uh, that you don't, you know, a lot of times celebrities get asked to do these kind mm -hmm. of things, uh, uh, famous people that have, that have an audience and make an impact. You don't necessarily have a, an audience, <laughs> but you sure have a competitive spirit. So Correct. tell us a little bit about what opportunities you have, the opportunity you have that's facing you right now that, that you have. Absolutely. Here. So as of right now, um, I have been nominated for the Man of the Year for the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society's 2019 campaign. Okay, that's LLS. Correct. The mm -hmm. LLS Society, which they do different research. They help out with copay assistance for patients, everything like that. They they have different chapters in every state. So the Tennessee chapter, I was nominated, and I don't even know by who. So mm -hmm. all I know is I was contacted from the LLS representative, uh, Miss Christina Ryan, she came and said, would you like to do this? I was like, yeah, absolutely. What is it? Yeah. <laughs> and she goes, basically what it is, it's a campaign from February 11th through April 27th. It's 10 total weeks, and it's a fundraiser. And she said, so you're actually one of the youngest that's ever been nominated. Mm -hmm. We usually, you know, we try to get big people, people who have a big network and stuff. And she says, but we're doing something a little different with you. You have mm -hmm. a younger, younger demographic. You're not the typical, I, every statistic I've read on past com competitors, I don't fit any one of them. Yeah, <laughs> like, right, right. I'm, I'm single. I don't live on my own yet. You mm -hmm. know, I just graduated college, et cetera, et cetera. So I am a complete outlier on everything they've asked before. But like you said, I'm a huge competitor. I'm looking forward to it. So we're just looking forward to getting going and just mm -hmm. doing the best that we can. So Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so what, what does the man of the year, how do you impact uh, lives? What mm -hmm. does the, so the, is the person that wins it for Tennessee announced at the 27th? Correct. Correct. So on April 27th, they'll have the final ga uh, gala. They'll announce the winner for the Tennessee chapter. Uh, whoever wins the Tennessee chapter, you automatically get put in for a national running. We've uh -huh. never had a Tennessee person win, so mm -hmm. obviously I'm going for that now. <laughs> I mean, come on. But um, so basically what it is, it's a huge fundraiser. Uh, the way we look at it is every dollar raised counts as a vote towards your candidate. Got it. The candidate with the most votes wins. That's okay. how we're kind of looking at it. The most impactful thing for me as I've told my, my parents and, you know, they've asked me, what do you want to do now that you've had a time to think about it? I just want to share my story. Mm -hmm. I think it's very impactful. People can take it inspiring or 
however anybody sees my story, I just want to be able to share it because I do know that things happen for a reason. And me holding this story to myself would just not be the correct thing to do. No. I need to get out there and share it. Mm-hmm. So for me, the best thing is I get to go around telling different people about stories. You know, I get to go around saying, hey, I know it's scary, but, you know, I'm your son's age. I'm your daughter's age. This could have happened to them. Help me make sure it doesn't happen to them. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. let's make sure let's go forward and do things that can help prevent it from happening to other people like that. So, so again, mm-hmm. what does LLS do? So the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society specifically, they help with coping assistance inside for patients. So for example, two of my medications alone, two medications cost $12,000. We were looking like what's going on here. Mm -hmm. People who can't afford that will immediately talk to an LLS representative and they will help make sure that they get those medications because it's honestly live or die get those medications yeah. so that you can defeat this yeah uh, they also are doing research i know that out of the 34 new therapies that happened for 2018 the lls specifically was in 31 of them mm. and that's across all cancers liver you know any type of other cancer that you can imagine the lls was a part of those research projects mm-hmm. and helped actually develop new therapies to help those different patients okay so they do a bunch of research they also um i know that they do different things uh, locally like you'll see different runs and stuff to help raise awareness and that's Mm -hmm. where they kind of choose man of the year is to focus on one candidate you share your story of how it was impacted but also raise the awareness of different blood cancers yeah all right so So we're gonna do the ask right now (laughs) Um, anyone that's listening to this podcast and just feels a a, a burden to support uh, what LLS is about uh, there's going to be a link in yes, the please. description of the show notes for the episode, uh, straight to Reed's page. So you can do two things. You'll be able to support Reed's quest yes. to be man of the year. Thank you, thank you. If you like the way he presented himself <laughs> here today and you feel like he's an inspiration, um, then consider donating and consider please. giving to uh, Reed's campaign for Man of the Year, but ultimately it's going to raise money for um, LLS to Correct. do research, to help fund... Uh, some of these copays that people are not able to do and yes. really making a huge impact on people's lives when you Absolutely. donate. Yeah. Coming from a patient himself, just seeing the different things, hearing different LLS members share yeah. their story and everything, it, it does truly make a difference. Yeah. And they, you said they've never had a patient, a press patient? That's, That's what, what I've told been you? told. They've, they've had patients, so I know we've had different survivors who have run, but they've never had someone quote unquote come out of a cancer battle and immediately do it. Go into it. Go right. straight into okay, it. So gotcha. yeah, gotcha. I was like, I know one of my other competitors, he's an incredible man listening to his story. He's a three time survivor. Mm-hmm. But he said he he had to take some time away. He had to wait. You know, they've had right. people run in honor of cancer patients. Mm-hmm, and, mm-hmm. you know, those patients have made appearances, but they've never had someone run right after their battle. Yeah, so that's so cool. Yes, sir. So cool. So read <laughs> Uh, Besh is going to yes. be kicking it out there thank you, thank from you. February 11th. So this episode will air on February 11th. So we're going to go live February 11th. You'll be able to donate uh, to this cause and we'll support you here at the Courageous Community. Thank you. Thank um, you very much. Not just with the podcast, but I know we have several events here in Middle mm-hmm. Tennessee that you're working on. Correct. Yes. Family's working on. So uh, we're definitely, you can count on uh, on me thank and you, thank you very much. <laughs> community to support you in, in any way that we can. We'll get the word out. We appreciate it. So, um, so any last kind of last words, any bits of advice, if you know someone that's facing 
cancer and you have a lot of empathy for them, Mm -hmm. no matter what kind of cancer it is, just any kind of hard news, what, um, what advice would you give them? Let's see the, I guess I'd leave them with two things. One, um, come up with your own motivation. So what I came up with after listening to Stuart Scott's story was never stop fighting. So if you know me, we've kind of built this, uh, we have little wristbands. You'll see we have t-shirts. On we, right now? I do. Yes, actually I do have it on right now. Mm-hmm. So we have different t-shirts made, but my motto was hashtag never stop fighting. Mm-hmm. So what I always did was every day I would remind myself of my own motto, never stop fighting, never stop fighting, never stop fighting. Um, so I always recommend for any patient, even if you're not a patient, even if you're just someone struggling, just come up with your own motto that you can tell yourself once every day. And then you'll start telling yourself twice every day and then Mm -hmm. three times. And then you'll become so absorbed about your own motto that you're going to want to promote it and make sure that other people are doing their mottos. So, um, that's one thing. And then the second thing is beating cancer does not start with the biggest thing in the world. You don't have to be diagnosed and then come up with a cure and fight it all. You can take it one step at a time. The best advice I got from one of my nurses was, you won't feel like eating every day, but take a bite. Mm -hmm. Take one single bite and start there. If you can't take another, you're done for the day. But if you can take another, then you take a second bite and then you take a third bite. You do what you can in the smallest of steps. And Mm -hmm. That, to me, made huge difference because there was days that I didn't feel like touching my food, but I ate one bite, and I think that's honestly what's gotten me further and further each day is taking that, just that one bite, that one yeah. small step. Yeah, not trying to tackle too many giants Absolutely. all at one time. Mm-hmm. It's like, just tackle this day. Mm-hmm. Make it through this day. Accomplish one thing today. Absolutely. Don't think that you have to do that uh, because long-term we always think we can do a lot more in a short amount of time. Mm-hmm. Um, and we always think that we can do a lot less in a long amount of time. Absolutely. So we need to reverse that. I like <laughs> that. I like that. So have your own motto. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think this is not just for cancer. You don't have to wait until you have a, a, a detrimental diagnosis, Absolutely. a negative mm-hmm. diagnosis. Start today. Mm-hmm. Start Absolutely. today with your own motto. What is your What is your motto that you want to live by? What's your word that you feel like you want to live by this year? A lot of times people mm-hmm. do that. Absolutely. You know, so decide that. And then secondly, understand that it's not about... Um, killing the giants every day. It's about um, taking it one bite at a time. Absolutely. I love it. I love it. Reed, you are an inspiration. Well, thank I thank you. you for sharing your story Absolutely. with us. And again, everybody you should go to the show notes. Um, even if you can donate one bite, which is a mm-hmm. dollar. Absolutely. You know, that, that will that make counts a as a vote. That matters just as Absolutely. much as the next vote. <laughs> yep. Yep. So go to that link. I encourage you to do that. If everybody does that, Man, we'd have hundreds of hundreds of dollars raised just from this one podcast. Um, so, uh, bless you, Reed. Thank you, thank you very much. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for coming on the Courage Cast.